Intelligence is a word that gets thrown around a lot under the Duterte administration. When police attempt to arrest and then end up killing a drug suspect, they cite intelligence as proof of the dead person's involvement in the drug trade. When they red-tag political adversaries, as they did in the debunked 2018 Red October plot, they cite intelligence. When Duterte asks Congress for an unprecedented multi-billion peso budget for his office, he cites intelligence. The word is once again used in the red tagging of students of the country's premier university, the University of the Philippines. But what is intelligence? How does it work? Is the Duterte administration using intelligence for security, as it should be used, or for political gain? Hello, I'm Rambo Talabong, Rappler's police and crime reporter. This is Rappler's crime podcast, Criminal. In this podcast, we revisit crime stories that are significant in understanding Philippine politics and society. This is our 13th episode, where we will talk about intelligence. For this episode, I interview retired General Cesar Garcia, former National Security Advisor and former National Intelligence Coordinating Agency Director General. Retired General Cesar Garcia, sir, welcome to the program. Thank you very much, Rambo, and uh, hello to your listeners. Sir, for people who are not familiar with your work, could you tell us about your service history? Well, I was, uh, the, I was in intelligence for most of my career in the service, in the military service. And I became Director General of NICA for about almost eight years after I retired and then became a national security advisor for six years during the administration of President Noyakina. Sir, the hot topic for the news these days is the termination of the UPD and the accord. And in this story, intelligence plays a central role where the military is actually citing intelligence in saying that there are students in the University of the Philippines who are joining the NPA, the CPP-NPA, and becoming militants. What's your reaction to this as an intelligence officer, as a seasoned intelligence officer? There have been students from many schools who have joined the CPP-NPA. But uh, let me just give a little background on that. When we were young officers, the problem was, at that time, the CPP-NPA was growing in strength and numbers. Mm -hmm. And the reason was because many of the student activists at the time joined the underground movement in protest against the Marcos regime. The Marcos regime at the time cracked down on the student movements and in the process prevented moderate organizations from growing inside the campuses. So what happened in the campuses at the time was that the students had a choice between either being pro-Marcos or pro-communist. There was no middle alternative. So in cracking down on, the, on everybody in the campus, the result was that everybody who were against Marcos had no alternative except to join the underground. And that contributed to the growth of the CPP. What we found out is that after EDSA, when the politics in the campuses became very liberalized, the number of students going to the hills have significantly declined. In fact, that is one of the problems of the CPP, at, uh, of the communist movement at the time when I was in the government, is that there are quality cadres have significantly declined in number. They were no longer able to recruit from the important universities like UP, Ateneo, La Salle, and the like. 
And that contributed significantly to the decline, to the decline of the insurgency. So you're saying, sir, that back in the University of the Philippines back then under the Marcos regime, they really joined the dissenting movement and they did not have a choice but to join the underground movement because there was no alternative. It was the only way to show their dissent. And did that tradition continue after? You said that there was a decline, but how is that connected to the present era, sir? Well, let's put it this way. As far as the present situation is concerned, it's been more than four years and a half since I left government. So I'm no longer privy to the kind of information that they have. But during our time, when I was a national security advisor, that is one of the, the reasons we have attributed to for having contributed to the decline of the insurgency from a peak of about 20,000 in 1986 to uh, less than 5,000 by the time I was in government. And the reason is because they ran out of, of quality cadres. That's one of the reasons, among others. And the reason is that less, they're able to recruit less and less from the quality universities in the Philippines. And for the most part, the political cadres that they've been recruiting are those coming from provincial schools and the like. So, sir, are, are we also attributing that reason of lessening recruitment because there is no strict regime, there is no regime that is having a crackdown on dissent. When, after the Marcos regime, there's a relative peace when it comes to dealing with communists. Did recruitment decline because of better circumstances? Yes, definitely. Um, in the campus, you know, um, I remember many years ago in one of the meetings with former UP President S.P. Lopez, uh, he told us then that uh, in cautioning us about cracking down on student activism. He said that, you know, in a campus like the University of the Philippines, for every 1,000 students, there are only about 100 who are politically active. The other 900 students would just like to live their life normally without being involved in campus politics. Of the 100, he said, only 10 will probably be members of the Communist Party. And of the 10, only or two or three will remain to be members of the Communist Party after graduation. So he said, radicalism in campuses is, is normal. It's part of being a student. And uh, eventually, society will just, uh, if you allow the process to just go unimpeded, the students will just uh, go on and lead a normal life, most of them anyway. And only very few, if at all, we join the underground after graduation. That's what he advised to us. By, by then, UP President S.P. Lopez. Sir, knowing this, that it's part of campus life, it's part of the experience of being educated, it's part of, you know, political participation, it just happens. What was your reaction when the government targeted UP, actually saying that the CPP NPA is actively recruiting inside the University of the Philippines, knowing that students join the movement, even if they're not from UP? That's true. Uh, well... Like I said, uh, Rambo, I am not privy to the current information that the government has. It's been four and a half years since I left government, so I am not competent to say this or that. But if it were during our time, if the situation would be during our time and the, and the state of insurgency was as it was then, then I, I think it would be counterproductive if we crack down on a, in, in the university when there is a 
although the, probably the militants and the more radicals would probably dominate the debate, but there are challenges to them inside the campuses. And these challenges are supposed to be the one who can moderate their influence overall in the university. And sir, there's also the question of, is this a strategic way of cracking down on communists? If ever, you know, there really is recruitment, even if there's no proof that's being presented by the government, is it strategic to target universities? In our last uh, discussion about red tagging, I said there is a better way to present the situation so that the young, who are mostly the targets, can better appreciate and understand what kind of threat they're facing or what kind of threat we're facing and what kind of blandishment they're being subjected to. There's a better way than, than red tagging, as I said. In your mind, sir, in your mind, what does this look like? What does the better way look like? The better way is always to, to provide alternatives. In a democracy, when there is more alternatives, let the alternatives uh, encourage the alternatives to come out and challenge the, the radicals. That's the only way I think that our democracy can survive. Now, sir, I wanted to ask you, sir, I'm going to throw you a question that's pretty general, but I still think it's pretty important to the subject that we're talking about. What role does intelligence play in keeping the country safe? There are two kinds of uh, intelligence. There is the, basically the strategic intelligence and the tactical intelligence. I'll address first on what is uh, on strategic intelligence. This is the, the, the broader sense of the situation, the national situation. Every, every administration, whether from way back then, are always faced with crises. And uh, it's important for us to address crisis in a very organized way. There are four steps to managing and addressing a, a crisis. The first step is to predict. The second step is to prevent. The third step is to prepare. And the fourth step is to perform. The predict aspect is the most important aspect because it will give us the ability to prevent if we can prevent and prepare if we cannot prevent. And predicting requires intelligence to be able to anticipate a crisis before it happens. For example, the pandemic. A pandemic can be anticipated if there is a regular monitoring of the overall health situation throughout the world because there are pandemics happening, epidemics happening in many parts of the world which could very well turn into a pandemic. And so it's very important that these are being monitored. The situation in, well, there are two examples. For example, the Marawi incident could have been anticipated through an effective crisis management following the pattern I mentioned, uh, predicting. And that, is, that involves strategic intelligence. The tactical intelligence is the more day-to-day thing, like predicting when a bomb will go off, for instance. Back in the 2000s, after 9-11 up to about 2006, Manila, Metro Manila was always under threat of uh, potential terrorist bombings. So part of the responsibility of intelligence then was to be able to predict when such an event could happen and prevent if there's a plot that is being monitored. So that's how the intelligence functions. Sir, in the situation of the CPPNPA, how does intelligence work? What is the strategic intelligence that you're doing and what is the tactical intelligence that the government is acquiring? The strategic, of course, is to assess whether the CPP-NPA constitutes a, still a major threat to the security of the country. Because in the allocation of resources, especially budget resources, you have to allocate it based on the more significant or the more immediate threat and so forth down the line. 
So it's very important to assess the position of the CPP-MPA as a threat in relation to the other threats that we're facing. We're facing a serious terrorist problem in the southern Philippines because of the continuing presence of ISIS-related groups in that place. We're also facing the problem in the West Philippine Sea, of territorial disputes in the West Philippine Sea, among others. So those are, that's how strategic intelligence plays into the picture. It can evaluate the levels of threat that way. The tactical intelligence aspect, and so far as the CPPNPA is concerned, is, is to assist is, uh, as a form of assistance to law enforcement agencies in the developing development of uh, legal cases to be filed against the individuals concerned. Intelligence only plays a function as an assist to the evidence gathering to law enforcement agencies. It is not the end all and be all of the function. It is to help law enforcement gather evidence. So that's how the intelligence plays a role and to counter insurgency. Sir, one thing that I wanted to ask you too about the Duterte administration and its handling of the intelligence it has is that it usually cites it in many instances uh, as in it, it's the closing argument of many of its claims. So for example, oh, they're, they're accusing a drug suspect as part of the drug list, as part of the drug trade. And what they're saying is, oh, it's based on intelligence. Oh, this student is a member of the CPPNPA. And then we ask, why? How do you know? And they just say, oh, it's intelligence. Is that a proper way of doing it, of information disclosure? I always believe that if you think somebody should be labeled as such, you, should, you must be able to file a case and prove that there is, a, in fact, a prima facie evidence that the person is such. Let me give you an example. When I was a director general of NICA, we were required by the United Nations as part of our responsibility to submit a list of terrorists to the UN United Nations Security Council sanctions list. When we submitted that list of the individuals, it wasn't based on intelligence information. It was based on the cases that were filed against those individuals. We say that this individual is a terrorist because he has been accused of the following offenses and he has warrants for these offenses. And these offenses constitutes a terrorist act as defined by the United Nations Security Council. Uh, that's how we approach it in our time. But like I said, uh, I would like to emphasize again Ramble, that I am not privy anymore to the current information that is available to our national security sector. Uh, they may have yes, sir. a different sector. Yes, sir. But I, I like the point that you raised that even if there are changing administrations, even if there are changing officers in the government, the standards have to be the same, right? The standards have to be high when it comes to handling intelligence. And you mentioned the high standard for disclosing and tagging someone as a terrorist. It has to be something that is filed in court. It's something that's backed up by evidence. And you can't just say that, oh, it's just based on intelligence. Am I correct in saying that? Well, that is the that, that is standard imposed to us by the United Nations itself. That's how we carried out our duties at the time. You're listening to the 13th episode of Criminal, Rappler's Crime Podcast. How is it so far? If you want to listen to other cool and informative audio, Check out other Rappler podcasts on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. This crime podcast wouldn't have been possible without your support. If you haven't yet, support Rappler by joining our community called Rappler Plus. Rappler Plus believes in speaking truth to power, using technology for the greater good, to power communities to action. Go to rappler.com plus for more details. Sir, 
one thing that's also pretty much talked about a lot under the Duterte administration when it comes to intelligence. And I think you've also heard of this, sir, is that intelligence gathering, it appears, really takes a lot of money. It takes a lot of resources. The president has a, a big multi-billion peso intelligence fund. The Philippine National Police also has a big intelligence fund and the armed forces of the Philippines. Why does it take so much resources for intelligence to work? There are many kinds of uh, intelligence. There is uh, what they call human intelligence, signal intelligence, various kinds of order of battle intelligence, among others. And some of those uh, activities in the collection effort requires a significant amount of resources. For instance, if you're dealing with human intelligence, that means uh, intelligence coming from human sources inside a target organization, you would probably need a significant amount of money to encourage them to cooperate with government and prepare for as well as uh, provide them with adequate uh, resources so that in case that they are compromised, they can lead a normal life somewhere else. So that's where you will probably need a lot of resources. Also in terms of other kinds of intelligence collecting activities, like, like for instance, uh, gathering of signal intelligence. Signal intelligence uh, requires uh, very sophisticated equipment, and those equipment are expensive. So that's why we need a lot of uh, significant resource for intelligence. Is signal intelligence sir, including you know, wiretapping, tapping into phone calls? You know, why tapping? There is a law, RA4200, Republic Act 4200, that authorizes tapping for certain offenses, for certain criminal offenses. In fact, it is prescribed, it is prescribed in the law. So it's not an illegal, uh, tapping is not per se illegal because it is authorized by law for certain offenses. And it also takes a lot of resources for the equipment, as you said, sir. It does, yes, it does. Uh, mm -hmm. But if I may add, no, Rambo, regarding that, that law that I mentioned, RA4200, the limitation of that law is that it only authorizes law enforcement agencies to wiretap land lines of communication. In other words, these old telephones, it does not authorize law enforcement agencies to apply for a warrant for other kinds of communication. For instance, our communication through the internet, this is not, uh, there's no law that will authorize a law enforcement agency to apply for a warrant to monitor our conversation. I want to pivot back, sir, to intelligence gathering in relation to the government strategy with the CPP and PA. A background that I think has to be talked about is how many times in the Duterte administration, even previous administrations, there's a key phrase that's already you know, being memorized by people, and that's a failure of intelligence. When that happens, sir, where are the gaps? Is there a flaw in our current intelligence gathering system, in our infrastructure, in our system when it comes to gathering intelligence? That's very good. Very good question, Rambo. You, you, you know, uh, the number one intelligence is the responsibility of any unit commander. So the commander of the West Mincom or the East Mincom in Mindanao are responsible for their intelligence within the area. So if there's a failure of intelligence in their area, they are responsible for it. And that's how the system works. If there's a, a failure of intelligence at a higher level, for instance, uh, war suddenly breaks out and we get caught flat-footed and you give flat-footed, the, the intelligence failure, of course, will lie in the national leadership of the intelligence community. 
That's where the responsibility is. In fact, if you remember, in 9-11, one of the problems in the United States at the time was in being able to, to pinpoint the responsibility of who was responsible for the failure of intelligence in 9-11. And they found out that the reason was because there was inadequate coordination between the Federal Bureau of Investigation and the Central Intelligence Agency. There was not enough intelligence sharing between the two because there was no mechanism for that purpose or the mechanism that existed was inadequate. So what happened was they created an office called the Director for National Intelligence to do that, to be able to, to merge this intelligence coming from two different organizations and come up with a unified position. Uh, in the Philippines, we have been trying to do that in various ways. For example, the Director General of NICA in the Philippines is also the chairman of the National Intelligence Committee. The National Intelligence Committee is composed of the different intelligence agencies of the major services, the Philippine National Police, the National Bureau of Investigation, the Bureau of Immigration, among others. There are are many member organizations. And their responsibility is to fuse intelligence, to come up with a common picture as to the nature of the threat facing the country at any given time. There's a structure called National Intelligence Committee, and that goes on down the line to the different Mm -hmm. uh, regions. Mm -hmm. And also, there is a, a mechanism that fuses the police and the military at various levels as well. I'm glad, sir, that you mentioned intelligence gathering as something that's also a collaborative project where in the police, the military intelligence agencies have to share information. And a case that, that's pretty striking for the past for the past years, you know the, the case of how policemen shot down intelligence officers of the armed forces of the Philippines, right? And it's also another another incident where people are saying, oh, it's a big failure of intelligence. It's also something that's admitted by the military and the police. There wasn't enough intelligence sharing among the agencies. Why does this keep on happening? Like all human organizations, there are always human errors committed. So perhaps somewhere along the line, the failure to coordinate, failure of coordination happened. And that thing can be charged to really human errors. So intelligence gathering is pretty clandestine. It's not something that's public. It's it's usually done by intelligence officers who are undercover, who, who also need to be thorough. But when you're an intelligence officer, you have you hold so much power because you your intelligence is cited by law enforcement, by commanders. How does an intelligence officer prove that an intelligence, a piece of intelligence is credible, that it is true, that, is, that it is factual? Because there isn't any way of you know, fact-checking that internally if you're just an intelligence officer gathering information. How, how are intelligence officers held to account and to a higher standard when it comes to gathering information? Thank you very much, uh, Rambo. First of all, let me just correct a misperception. 90% of intelligence is gathered from open sources through various publications, research conducted. That's 90%. Only about 10% at the most is gathered through clandestine means. That's the proportion of the amount of um, activity being assigned to any intelligence organization. 90% is really research. 10% is a clandestine organization, clandestine gathering. Now, how do you evaluate the product of an intelligence operative when he submits a report? Well, he, he submits, uh, he evaluates it the same, way, the same way that journalists do. They evaluate their sources, they find out how credible their source is, how if that source piece of information can be validated and corroborated by other sources. And from that basis, you can 
more or less estimate how accurate the information will be. And that's the same story for clandestine intelligence collection. There is an, an, activity, an activity in every intelligence organization called a source control program, where all sources are centralized and they are periodically assessed as to their accuracy. Because it is frequent, it's not an infrequent incident to have intelligence brokers come out, come to you, and report something which has of little or very erroneous value. And uh, they do that for a, for a price, for money. So being victimized by an intelligence broker is something that is one experience that most intelligence operatives have gone through in their lives. So there is an, an office that handles source control inside every intelligence, major intelligence organization. Because you mentioned that, that 90% of intelligence is sourced from open source information, a big issue currently hitting the Philippines is misinformation. Disinformation starts infecting open source information sources like the internet, like social media, and even the armed forces of the Philippines, even the National Intelligence Coordinating Agency has fallen into this mistake of citing false news sites, sir. The NICA was actually lambasted um, earlier in the Duterte administration for citing a fake news website and passing it off as an intelligence report. This information, sir, is a threat to intelligence gathering. I agree. Uh, in fact, uh... I think we know what's happened in, what happened in the United States in the last election, when up to now, a significant amount of the population still do not believe that the election was, was free and fair, and that they believe that the current president in the United States won because of fraud. They acquired that belief because of information coming from the social media. I, I agree that there is a problem as far as social media is concerned, and as far as how it might affect intelligence in the future. Unfortunately, I have retired from government when this problem has started to emerge. So uh, looking at these things now, I can see that this is going to be a problem for intelligence organizations, the kind of information that is coming out of the social media. I'm going through to the second to the last question. If there's one thing that you want people to know about intelligence gathering, about intelligence in the Philippines, what would that be? The intelligence is not their enemy. It actually helps them. There were many occasions that intelligence was able to predict a particular crisis before it happened and preventive measures were undertaken to prevent that from happening. Unfortunately, some of those uh, activities in the past uh, remain classified at this time. But there had been instances that uh, because of intelligence, an event was predicted, an event was prevented from happening, and as a result, a crisis was prevented. So intelligence performs a very important function in running the government. I mentioned to you a while ago that in terms of strategic intelligence, it helps in the allocation of resources, how much money should be spent for national defense and national security, and how much should be allocated for social protection and economic development. So these are very important functions of intelligence. My last question, sir, is considering the important role of intelligence in the management of the country of keeping people safe, what is your message to intelligence officers today? Well, the most important thing for intelligence officers is to be credible because the minute you lose your credibility, the same way that uh, in the past, the, some intelligence organizations were accused of manufacturing intelligence for the purpose of uh, advancing the political causes of some people, that happened in the, I think, not very long ago in the United States again, when um, 
we hear stories of uh, the former president even being actively discrediting his own intelligence organization. So it's very important for intelligence to be credible, to be seen, to be on the side of truth all the time. And what about politics? Where does intelligence come in? I'll say again, Rambo. Is there a place for intelligence in politics, sir? Because it's also heavily politicized. Sorry for asking this other question, but I think it's important. That, that's correct. You know, politics in general is one of the strategic intelligence factors. It is a, in fact, the, it's one of the about nine intelligence factors. Political, economic, social, those are the intelligence factors. And uh, when you say politics and intelligence, you don't mean partisan politics. You mean politics in the broader sense. So that's where intelligence comes in. The kind of political system that we have, our belief in democracy, those are the that uh, part of our responsibility will be defense of that democracy to make sure that our political system works for the people, among others. What should intelligence officers do, military officers do, if politicians politicize it in the petty and self-serving ways that it shouldn't have been done? If it advances their political interests, using intelligence to push forward their agenda. For example, the administration is against the CPPNPA and is using a lot of intelligence, citing a lot of intelligence to rid of them, and also using intelligence to get rid of political adversaries and also drug suspects. How should military officers, intelligence officers act when intelligence is, is threatened of being politicized? One thing the senior political, senior intelligence officer should always do is being able to speak truth to power. You know, the number one example of how intelligence may have been politicized in the past is the Hello Garcia incident back in 2005-2006, if you remember that incident. That is the best example of how intelligence became politicized. So the intelligence officers nowadays should be very careful about getting involved in that kind of activity that will probably erode their credibility in the process. Sir, what does it mean to speak truth to power for intelligence officers? Because for us journalists, speaking truth to power means fact-checking government officials saying that, oh, that's not correct, sir. This is the correct information. This is the truth. Is that the same thing for intelligence officers? They should correct uh, political entities, even the president himself? You know, I've been in government for a long time. And I know that, of course, uh, all administrations have their biases. They have their particular beliefs and their particular perceptions of other of the situation. But sometimes, as a senior intelligence officer, if you are in that position, it is your responsibility to always speak truth to power, to give the information as factually as you can, no matter how unpleasant or uncomfortable it might make your uh, recipient become. This is very important because if you try to modify your report to suit the belief of your the recipient, you are going, you are doing great disservice not only to yourself but to your organization and to the country. Speaking truth to power with intelligence, General Garcia. Thank you so much for speaking with us. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Rambo. This has been Criminal. If you'd like to be updated on this and other issues, don't forget to follow Rappler and Newsbreak on Facebook and Twitter. And if you have suggestions about topics we should cover in this podcast, just send me a message. My inbox is open on Twitter at Rambo Reports. I'm Rambo Talabong. Thank you for listening. Subscribe and listen to this podcast on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you get your podcasts.